listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to Professor of Law, Frank Pasquale. The stories we tell about the economy and society and politics are so critical. Like they really help decide and they really help channel us in certain directions and away from others. Frank shared his insights into how artificial intelligence can capitalize on human strengths and take advantage of human limits, what automation means for healthcare, education and warfare, and how the robotics regulations we implement today might have a dramatic effect on the future of work. In his 1942 short story, Runaround, science fiction author Isaac Asimov outlined three laws for machines. These laws, preoccupied with ensuring robots don't cause death or injury to human beings, still feature heavily in the current discourse around artificial intelligence. Of course, the way intelligent agents have expressed themselves in modern life is vastly different from the predictions made by Asimov. And as such, these principles are long overdue an update. Thankfully, in his recent book, New Laws of Robotics, Frank Pasquale provides four alternative recommendations for how we should govern the use of robotics within healthcare, warfare, media, and society at large. Rather than attempting to mitigate any possible homicidal tendencies expressed by future machines, these new laws explore the working relationship between humans and robots, one that Frank hopes will see AI supplementing rather than replacing human expertise, and in doing so will help realise important human values. So Frank, why did you feel it was important to update Asimov's laws of robotics? And what did you feel were the limitations of these laws? I think it was important for a few reasons. Um, one is that I think that Asimov's laws were really focused on trying to ensure that robots don't hurt us. And I think that if they could be implemented well, uh, they could do a good job in taking many steps in that direction. But I wanted to go a bit further with this book and talk about human sustainable, durable human control over technology. And I think that takes a little bit more than a non-harm principle and takes us into some principles that involve political economy, sociology, law, uh, just thinking about it from more of, I think, a, a broader social scientific perspective on where tech is going. Could you explain what some of your new laws are and, and what specifically they focus on? Sure. So I began in the new laws of robotics with looking at debates over automation and the future of work in the professions. And out of a lot of studies and work uh, looking at the development of AI and robotics technology in different fields, my first new law says that robotics and AI should complement professionals rather than replacing them. And this, I knew, would be controversial on two levels. One is that there's lots of people that want to see the professions automated. They feel that we need to have uh, come closer to, say, the Star Trek uh, tricorder vision of the future of doctors and diagnoses or you know, create uh, robots or machines that could help proliferate uh, expertise there. But one of the arguments that I try to make is that in the profession of medicine and many other professions, you need to have an ongoing dialogue and cooperation between domain experts that are in the field that's being automated or being informed by AI and the technologists. And part of what I see as the future of work in, in so many fields is making sure that uh, people are who are close to the client, the patient in the case of doctors, clients in the case of many other professions, can help intermediate between them and the technology 
First, to help figure out, like, is the technology working or not? That's been a big issue, for example, with respect to diagnostic apps. Um, are they accurate? Are they doing well? And also to help guide them through the incredible array of different devices, uh, things being marketed as AI, uh, so that they aren't taken in by snake oil. <laughs> because I think that's a that's an ongoing problem with technology. And we saw it with pharmaceuticals in the early 20th century. And we risk something similar happening if we have too rapid uh, automation in many of these fields. Another law of robotics that I think is really complementary with the first law about complementarity between AI and professions or promoting intelligence augmentation in professions Another one involves um, uh, the principle that AI and robotics should not counterfeit humanity. And what I mean by that, and I think it's, it's a rather uh, difficult principle to apply sometimes, but I think that the core idea here is that we don't want to have a massive investment in tools that are meant to deceive users into thinking that the tool itself has had, say, an emotional response, a human response, um, something along those lines, when it is, in fact, a simulation of those things. And I think particularly if we look at the open text or text generating programs and programs like GPT-3 and others, or these sort of large language models that can generate large amounts of text, I think it's really important in the future to label that they came from such models rather than allowing the models to, say, use a uh, face that was uh, generated by a general generative adversarial network and say, oh, this is just a person, you know, just pretending it's a person out yeah. there uh, speaking or, or putting out text. A third new law of robotics for me is a principle that we need to stop unproductive arms races. The AI and robotics should not be contributing to those. And the classic example of that is the uh, international campaign to stop killer robots. Uh, and I think that's a great campaign. And I, I describe it uh, at length in the book, but I also try to complement it with a larger political economic perspective. But I also think that there are many areas where AI and robotics are being deployed where it's really a zero-sums arms race. Um, we're not adding to the productivity of society. We're just helping one group cut the queue or, or get a positional advantage relative to another. And unfortunately, you know, speaking as someone who uh, is, a, is a lawyer, um, I see a lot of this in law. I think a lot of it is uh, happening in law and finance and in other areas where machines are increasingly judging human beings. And then finally, a fourth new law of robotics is on attribution and requiring that any robotic or AI system be attributable to a person or group of persons. And this has both, I think, a very pedestrian and a very uh, ambitious facet. So the pedestrian facet is just that, you know, if we have drones flying about, like we now have cars on the road, we may have drones everywhere in the next 10, 20 years, that any particular drone, you could just point your smartphone at it and know who owns it. And I think that with respect to, uh, or at least be able to uh, test tie it back to a registry where upon proving certain needs to have the information, you'd be able to get that information about who owns it. But it also has, I think, a much more ambitious view, which is to say that, you know, if you have this attribution requirement, essentially, you're really cutting down on the possibility of the forms of autonomy of AI and robotics that are most concerning to the existential risk theorists. I mean, these laws that, that they promote complementarity, authenticity, cooperation, and, and attribution, as you've so wonderfully described there. But uh, more importantly, what they do together is that they capitalize on human strengths. And as you say in the book, they take advantage of human limits. So could you explain some of the ways in which they do that? Oh, well, thanks so much. That is, a, I think, a really deep message of the book. And I'm really glad that you're surfacing it here in our conversation. And I think that these advantages are really critical in terms of rigorous data practices and empathy. 
And I think that, for example, with, with respect to trying to figure out whether robotics and AI systems are working, I think a, a naive point of view on it might be that we can develop outcomes that we want, key performance indicators, that would tell us whether these systems are working or not. But in fact, a lot of times it's hard to figure out exactly how well, say, a surgical intervention has worked compared to a pharmaceutical or exercise intervention, say, for someone with orthopedic problems. Or in the educational context, there are ongoing controversies over how we measure the value of an education. Is it, for example, the degree premium? You know, how much someone after college, how much more they, they make than they would have made if they had not gone to college? Is it their level of citizenship and awareness of civics? Is it having some basic understanding of uh, science and math? Um, these are all really difficult things to think about in terms of like how well has either an automated or non-automated process gone or an AI process or, or a more human-centered one. And I think the promise of human intervention here is people being able to more in a more nuanced and qualitative manner figure out whether things you know have gone well or not. I, I've been teaching recently a course called Health Data Analysis and Advocacy. And I've been thinking about patient reported outcome measures such as level of pain. And it's so interesting how the all the different ways in which you can ask a patient to report on pain, to describe it, to treat it, etc. And often the quick technical fix is a is a bad one. You know, um, opioids can lead to addiction and other other problems like that. And so you you want to have, I think, an, an empathetic and sympathetic interlocutor who's actually experienced pain to try to gather that data and make sense of that data. So that I think is the that that is a really good way of thinking about how there's human abilities there that I think are quite good to capitalize on. But you also mentioned human weaknesses that are good to capitalize on. And, and that reminds me of the a discussion in the book about automated classrooms, right? I, I began the chapter on education talking about program in China um, by uh, two companies that would take a picture of every student in the classroom every second and have a picture of their face and then analyze the face and to analyze it by saying, is the student attentive or not? And one of the companies actually claimed to be able to deploy affective computing to have more granular assessments of is the student uh, daydreaming, sad, happy, engaged, not engaged, etc. And I think that the problem with that is that, you know, uh, thinking back to my time in grade school, no one can go to my third grade teacher and say, did he show signs of being a menace, of being uh, irresponsible, <laughs> of being unengaged, etc.? But if you unleash too much automation and surveillance in these settings, the risk is that you end up with this incredibly supercharged permanent record or student record. And in that way, I think that there is a real problem, you know, in terms of thinking about the ways in which this sort of supercharged super record, student record could lead to a fear, unfairness, um, sort of a, a, the same types of problems that uh, Europe has been grappling with the, with the right to be forgotten. There's so many wonderful case studies in the book, but largely what the book really focuses on is robotics in the context of the future of work. And there's so many assumptions that we make when we think about the future of work. We're constantly told that robots will take our jobs, but at the same time, we see massive amounts of evidence that robots don't do our jobs very well. So I guess my question, Frank, is how did the idea that robots will make us obsolete, how did that become such a dominant meme, especially in managerial circles? 
It's a great question, and I actually had a, a section of the book in one of my first drafts of it that went into this in some detail, and so I'm so glad you asked about this because I, my personal sense is that I, I, I would trace this, the current panic about robotics and AI, to the late 2000s, early 2010s, and it was a time at which many journalists were watching their profession sort of collapse from underneath them, <laughs> and I think that because of that, there was this problem in terms of, I think that there were journalists who were seeing, at least in the U.S., and I think in many places, long-standing newspapers shutting down or going from having, you know, 400 reporters to 30 reporters, et cetera, and all of the money essentially being, or so much of the money being directed toward large, largely automated AI-driven platforms of, say, Google or Facebook that were much more efficient at matching audiences to advertisers. And the idea there, I think, was that many journalists sort of saw that and sort of extrapolated from their own experience where one of their core competences was apparently relatively easily automated, although there's there's a lot of controversy over that even now, and projected that. And so I think that's how the story became so popular. And it's particularly important to focus on these economic stories because I think as Jens Beckert, an economic sociologist, or Deirdre McCloskey point out, our stories, or Robert Schiller too, is one of the, the most recent uh, people to dip into uh, narrative economics. The stories we tell about the economy and society and politics are so critical. Like they really help decide and they really help channel us in certain directions and away from others. And so that's where I would lay a lot of the blame. Although there's also, I think, there's also an ongoing, I, I can't totally blame journalists. I mean, journalists, there's lots of very smart <laughs> journalists writing in this area. I should also say that like there's there's just an ongoing pressure to cut labor costs in order to enhance the relative value of capital. And that, of course, is pushing this trend as well. But fortunately, I think now there are a lot of very sophisticated commentators like Leslie Wilcox, uh, who's sort of an expert on both automation and outsourcing, who are predicting that like the real problem will not be too little work for humans, it'll be infinite work. You know, these these technological systems produce so much information and so much data to sort through and that need some human judgment as we're sorting through it, that there, there could be infinite work uh, thanks to them. I mean, you do such a good job at breaking down some of those assumptions that we have about the future of work, because the idea of robotic lawyers and robotic doctors, I mean, to some degree, that's that's largely hype isn't it? Ultimately, the way in which you're thinking about robots is that they make labor more valuable, not less valuable. I think that's that's absolutely the case. And and the issue with making labor more valuable rather than less is we do see that in many of the professions, you know, you have, for example, a robot anesthesiologist, which is another example I don't get into in the book, but I I I did in earlier drafts, but I I think it's, it's helpful for this, imagining the situation. If you think about a robot anesthesiologist, originally the people that were marketing this type of tool were saying, yeah, we're going to replace anesthesiologists. There's a huge market here. These people make a lot of money, at least in the U.S. and in fact in many places, and that's going to be the future of anesthesiology. However, it just turned out that it was very difficult to sort of get the relevant regulatory approvals of uh, safety and efficacy. Uh, And so then instead... What you can have is anesthesiologists monitoring several of these machines that will increase the anesthesiologist's productivity, right? Or you can add in the subroutines from these machines to try to make sure that uh, we avoid errors. So we have like not just one fail-safe for a bad anesthesiology procedure, but like two or three or four thanks to AI and all that it can sense things potentially going wrong during the, the procedure. And so that really increases their productivity, increases their value, the value of that labor. And part of the, the goal of the book is to try to figure out how do other 
walks of life? How do we bring other walks of life and, and say, people that are in unions now or, or areas that are not as rigorously professionalized as the folks of some of my case studies, how do we bring them into that situation where AI and robotics is increasing the value of their labor rather than being a menacing substitute for them? I mean, much of the fear around robots taking our jobs derives from the idea of the data double. The idea that machines can record and imitate what workers do, and then eventually the worker will be replaced by it. Why do you think the promise of a, of a data double doesn't actually match the reality on the ground? I think the digital double model, it was, it was actually the inspiration for the whole book. Because what I found was, I entered into some of these debates with respect to robot lawyers. And I would point to a program, an online program that created wills. And I would say to them, you know, I tried to use your program, but it turns out that, and I just came across this fortuitously. I'm not a trust and estates expert or anything like that. But I said, fortuitously, it turns out that, you know, thanks to this one Supreme Court decision, there's a significant asset class that many people have. It seems as though your program is suggesting that the will will decide who gets it. But in fact, there's a separate form called designation of beneficiary that decides who gets it. Okay. And then when I would make that claim, then people that were in legal tech would say, well, thank you. You know, now you've given us the better way to do version 2.1 or <laughs> version 2.2, right? And so the idea that they were suggesting was that any critique that was offered would eventually itself be wrapped into the automation itself and the AI itself. Now, of course, there's two ways to respond to that. I mean, one would be I could just surrender and say, okay, well, you know, let me let me join your company. But then the second is to say, but wait, there's some things where it's not quite clear what the answer is, right? And then you have to guide someone through and say, well, there's actually not a lot of clarity about this particular way of disposing of something in a will, or like there's a trust that could be quite complicated, et cetera. And so that I think is where the challenge is. I think the key challenge is, and I tell all my students this, is, a, is I say, you know, if you think that your daily work routine could be just totally routinized and predicted, watch out because it will probably be routinized and predicted by somebody. But to the extent that it seems to require a lot of improvisation, judgment, consultation, et cetera, then that seems to be something that's less likely. And I think that, that, that those types of improvisations, consultations, et cetera, are becoming a lot more important to growing areas of work. Particularly, like I think in the US, the largest growing area of work now is in healthcare and particularly like home health aides, physician assistants, physical therapy, other things like that, all of which are pretty high touch and pretty communicative. I think that's part of the resisting the supposedly irresistible logic of the digital double path to, to robotic replacement for workers. <laughs> I mean, some of that irresistible logic is because the sort of inmates are running the asylum. It's the AI researchers who, <laughs> who look at industries and go, you know what, I think this would be more efficient if we did X, Y, and, and Z and removed the human and, may, and datafied this piece of work. But the way in which you're looking at regulation is, in actual fact, there needs to be some form of collaboration between the industry and the folks actually developing the AI. So how do we, how do we develop that, that relationship? Yes, that is a terrific way of framing the future of future of work debates, uh, yeah. <laughs> because that's really where we're we're headed. I think is trying to develop that cooperative relationship. And here, there's actually some work I'm doing now for uh, the I believe it's called the Oxford Handbook on Expertise, and it's sort of a collection of an interdisciplinary collection of people thinking about the concept of expertise. And I think that one way that what has gone wrong in some of the future of work literature has been the idea of meta-expertise. 
that there are people who uh, usually identified as experts in code quantitative analysis algorithmic uh, approaches who can themselves judge the value of what other experts do. And I think that, that the, the problem that comes up for the meta-experts, first of all, is an infinite regress problem because then you ask, well, who are the meta-meta-experts that decide the value of the different meta-experts that are deciding the value of the experts? <laughs> and so, But secondly, because of the, the difficulty of evaluation that you know, we've already discussed in some other contexts. So the positive view, I think, comes out of the critique. And I think the positive view is one of complementarity and working together. And to give some legal examples here, there were some studies recently that stated that that showed or purported to show that judges after lunch gave lighter sentences than judges before lunch, or they or they were being more favorable to the people they heard after lunch than before lunch, and so that was seen as a bias. And similarly, with respect to judges in a certain state after their football team lost, they were harsher on juveniles than uh, if their football team had won. So clearly, this type of thing is something you don't want to see in a fair justice system. That should not be; those extraneous factors should not be leading to disparate impacts on different groups. And I think that that type of statistical analysis is something that the judicial system is is wise to bring in more of, you know, to have people sort of come in and say, we're sp- spotting some problems and some patterns that you may want to think about. And, you know, but but I don't think the answer is to sort of say, well, what would be much better is to have natural language processing look at the overall trial court record and just spit out a number for how long the person's sentence should be. I think rather it might be we learn this on a system-wide level and then we give the judge a snack before lunch, or I don't know, you know, or at least try to, or at least warn them that like these patterns are happening. And then, of course, if the patterns continue, then things become a little more complicated. But that's that's one way of I think envisioning this sort of cooperation. There are other examples I think in journalism. Some people working with the National Institute of Computer Assisted Journalism are thinking I think very rigorously about that. And Julia Angwin at the Markup has I think really modeled how you can bring in data science to journalism that puts. I think a certain rigor, you know, because now I think that the old critique of a lot of journalism was like, oh, it's anecdotal. You t- interviewed five people and whatever. And you look at some of the, the pieces that come up on the markup and it's like, oh, wow, she's analyzed, you know, they figured out a program that has analyzed 10,000 comments on the agency website. You know, so I think that is some of the examples, I think, of this cooperation. At the core of this, there, there is that concern of the role of expertise and how that functions in our society. And and some may say, well, we don't need experts if we have AI, especially those careerist futurists that uh, you know you're, you're <laughs> rightly uh, critical of in in the book. And and they say, look. AI removes the need for professionals. With enough data sets and enough data, any human function can eventually be replaced by a robot. But why do you not share this view? First, I should actually start with a concession. Like, <laughs> I can't predict, you know, in 50 to 70 years, if classrooms will be mainly robots, you know, or will mainly be an AI that, you know, Saul Khan initiated and that eventually becomes like larger and larger part of education. But what I do know is that if we decide on that as a long-term telos for education, say that's where we want to be in the year 2100 or what have you, that's really going to involve a lot of surveillance and a lot of data analysis on individuals by some firms that are at present, I think, not very responsible and not very responsive to those who want a more nuanced approach. And so I think that's one way to sort of to respond to the long-term futurist argument. One of the things I tried to do in this book that, I I mean, I don't know how successful it was, but I wanted to both respond to 
the people that are sort of the short-term AI ethics and reformist community and to the people that are sort of the much longer-term existential risk community. Because I think right now, both of them, they don't talk to each other that much. The short-term pragmatists think that the long-termists are just, you know, pie in the sky, and the long-termists are sort of like, you know, yeah, 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 we'll deal with that, you know, or have existing agencies deal with it, but, like, we've got to think about a broader vision. And I think that actually the the problems now that are being identified by the short-termists could really get exacerbated massively if we go in the direction of, you know, the fully automated luxury communism sort of school or a more singularitarian approach or what have you. And so it's it really uh, is, is important to look at that now. But on the other hand, I think that like some of the the short-termists are critiquing, like for example, electronic monitoring instead of prisons, right? This this is, I think, just such a fascinating case study. Their critiques of electronic monitoring as opposed to prisons, I think draw on a much larger sort of philosophical and theoretical framework than they often let on to, right? They they draw on sort of a, a vision of human flourishing and freedom that is like that is the the mainstay of people debating in the long term sort of camp, but is I think less likely to get engaged in now in the more pragmatic uh, reformist camp. Some high tech advocates, often the cyber libertarians, often argue that AI should be given the freedom to think and access all the data at once. I mean. What are some of the dangers in taking a position like that? The cyber libertarian position, I think, is is a really worrisome one to me because I think that it has this logic of ever-increasing data accumulation to me becomes alienating and alienating in the sense of meaninglessness and powerlessness. And to give a concrete example of that, you know, I mean, I, I, there's been a lot of discussion about loans and either micro lending or algorithmic lending. And I just saw this great piece about uh, Chinese apps and apparently like a huge number of Chinese apps are now trying to push their users into loans. And some people say, well, the way in which you regulate that is you just allow, or you shouldn't regulate it, uh, allow people to make free contracts. And gradually you'll just get more and more data about who's a good risk and who's a bad risk. And then the credit will be allocated optimally. But my worry about that type of world is that at least from the people that I've spoken to in this sort of fintech micro lending community, the way that they judge the value of the loan or the uh, success of a particular uh, lending event really comes down to repayment. Of course, in, in some of the worst American examples, it also comes down to like repayment plus lots of fees and penalties. But we'll leave, set that aside for a moment. And they don't really get into like how was the repayment made? If the repayment was made just by getting a loan from another micro-lending app, then that sounds like the person's getting increasingly desperate. If it was made by starving the person or like the person not eating, taking a meal for like five days or something, that seems pretty bad as well. And so, you know, and, and I saw this really great study of like micro-lending in Kenya, and it's called, the popularization of it was called something like um, debt in the Silicon Savannah in, in, in Kenya. And they just talked to lots of people that just had a really difficult time. They were repaying the loans, but were just having a really difficult time. All of those examples, I think, you know, on the one hand, finance is the area where I think AI and robotics has gone the furthest. Probably finance and media slash journalism in terms of really structuring or restructuring our worlds. And yet, there are just so many ongoing problems there that really haven't been addressed by the leading companies and leading firms uh, or regulators, uh, to be frank. 
it really does feel like the small decisions that we make today are going to have a massive impact on how AI is going to be developed in the future. But I wonder if AI is even the right word. Should we be talking about artificial intelligence or what we should really be talking about is intelligence augmentation? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that the intelligence augmentation as a field description is a very good one. I think that it was uh, the book Machines of Loving Grace, I think by Markov, John Markov, um, that, that looked into some of the early history of those terms of like intelligence augmentation. And I think that Doug Engelbart was really pushing that in the 60s versus people that said, no, the real goal is something much more ambitious. It's to uh, create something that's in, in, in silico, a replacement for or simulation of or just goes beyond what the human intellect can do. I've just been working on a piece with Barbara Evans, who's a terrific engineering slash law professor at Florida, on the role of uh, the FDA in looking at software as a medical device. Like if diagnostic software makes a, a recommendation or makes a diagnosis recommendation to a doctor or says here's a range of possibilities there. And what's so interesting about this area is that the FDA building on legislation, they have developed a distinction between explainable and non-explainable software. And in our work, we try to say that, you know, to the extent the software is non-explainable, it's just sort of spitting out recommendations uh, in a black box sort of style, it should be subject to more lawsuits than if it is just uh, a tool that is walking through the doctor through and saying, well, here's what I think. <laughs> but what's what's fascinating there is that like the, the intelligence augmentation approach perhaps is comes closer to what like a real a machine conversing with a human might look like because it's actually explaining you know why it thinks a, a, a given diagnosis is more likely than another. It's a great example of how legal regimes can play a role in helping push uh, the development of technology in one direction or another, as well as stories like and, and, and framing like the Intel IA versus AI. When we think about how to govern AI more generally, it's problematic because governance isn't necessarily exciting and isn't necessarily sexy until we talk about warfare and guns and autonomous <laughs> yes. weapons. And then suddenly we're quite happy to have the governance debate. But there's some advantage to that, isn't there? The, the idea that the way in which we govern AI and autonomous weapons, those things that we do now in relation to those innovations, they could have a serious impact on the way we all organize social cooperation and deal with conflict more generally in society, couldn't they? Absolutely. I found that the hardest part of the book to write because I felt like the rest of the book, I had a sense of an overarching regulatory body that nation by nation could sort of reflect national values or even you know states or provinces, then nations. And, and we were working from within that framework. Whereas the killer robot problem, the AI and cybersecurity uh, debates that are emerging now and are becoming more and more intense now, that really does need a, a global perspective. And trying to find some baseline of global values is really difficult. Like I was part of this group. There were representatives from the Chinese government from and Australian academics and some bureaucrats and uh, some, some Americans. And it was just fascinating how sometimes it felt like there was 
a real difficulty in trying to get to the the core things we could agree on and something like facial recognition. You know, like we, we would sort of, some of the people that were skeptical about facial recognition would say, uh, talk about the negative things that could be done. And then other groups, uh, at least that particular Chinese delegation would say, well, what about child kidnappings? Like there's so many child kidnappings, this can stop. And it was hard to sort of like find that common uh, framework of values. And I think there's something very similar with respect to the arms and uh, enhanced soldiers and, you know, all, all the different things that like uh, the war futurists uh, talk about. And it's, it's hard. It, 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 it becomes this situation where I hope that we can regain a level of global alarm and ability to unite against those that clearly violate norms there. But simultaneously, part of the, the battle is going to be like the nuclear non-proliferation battle, which is just to, to realize there's going to be some states that are going to have really advanced AI warfare capabilities, but how you avoid proliferation of those and, and use of those. Well, it's interesting to me that it's not always about warfare. It's sometimes about this this new neodulism, lawfare. I mean, mm. what is lawfare and, and how does it operate when thinking about autonomous weapons systems? Yeah, the lawfare debate is a really good way into the problems here because in thinking about the use of, say, drones in territories that are occupied by the U.S. Uh, military, these drones can potentially watch people 24-7, know whenever they've gone out of their house, and could drop bombs on them. And the problem becomes that you know usually the, the affordances of war or the tolerance that the international community has had for the killing that goes on in war depends on the idea that this is an existential life or death battle that anyone on each side could be killed and therefore by virtue of giving up their safety in entering into a wartime environment they are potentially justified in killing others and what's been noticed and now with, with technological asymmetries or the sort of extreme asymmetries of uh, capability is that if uh, you've got a drone fleet that is effectively operated by people in Nevada that is you know, flying over parts of Pakistan or Afghanistan or, or Yemen, the people operating the fleet have certainly have no uh, skin in the game, so to speak. They, they can't be hurt by the people that they're, they're patrolling. And so then it starts looking less like a war and more like a police action. And then there's just so many different rules that are supposed to at least limit what police can do. Of course, in the U.S., we've had massive protests over violations of exactly that in terms of use of excessive force. But there are at least a, a set of rules there. And what's been happening on the international context is what the historian and lawyer Sam Moyne calls this. Um, he's, he says that war has become both more longer lasting and more pervasive and more humane. It's because of this lawfare where essentially you have international norms and international law restricting how far you can push your advantage. And so this merger, I think, of like international law and norms with uh, potential ethics of policing itself suggests that like we, we are intuiting that massive technological asymmetry is something that needs to be regulated and recognized and not pushed too far to one size advantage. And I think that's going to be a really interesting ongoing debate and a difficult ongoing debate 
going forward in wartime situations. So maybe there's really two laws of warfare in a way that are developing. And one is in the sort of occupation context, and another is between well-matched enemies where, say, almost anything could go. I mean, all of these concerns come from a fascination with how AI is going to interact with humans. And one of the ways in which we help human interaction with technology is by humanizing it. But that kind of research can also lead to something known as counterfeiting human characteristics. And I hadn't quite realized until I read your book that those two things are completely different. So could you explain why it's so important to uh, create a dividing line between AI and humanity? Yes, this is one of the, the most controversial of the laws. And I think it's, and it's really involves a long-term projection of what's fair for corporations to deploy and governments to deploy as they increasingly use technology to mediate their relationships between themselves and, and us or you know citizens, users, consumers, etc. So that's the first thing that led me into this. But the second part, I think, is is a more metaphysical commitment. So to start with the with the first sort of pragmatic limits on the use of affective computing to manipulate people. Just to introduce the idea of affective computing, there are lots of people now who are trying to use computing systems to parse people's faces and to analyze their faces to see is the face, like in the, in the classroom example I gave earlier, is this person engaged? Are they really thinking about this or is their mind elsewhere? Are they uh, happy or sad? And there's all sorts of emotion, emotions that could be attributed to someone. I like to say emotion attribution as opposed to emotion recognition because I think that like often it's really hard to recognize the emotion and that in fact they are so ephemeral and ineffable that the mere suggestion in fact does, goes a long way toward creating the thing or the memory uh, of it. And so this is advancing and you know you see very crude versions of it say where they can develop an ad that is matched to you that looks like the person in the ad looks like you, right? And so then it's like, oh, that person looks trustworthy, or I know that type of person, et cetera. And then just keep pushing that harder and harder in terms of vulnerability marketing or you know other ways of developing sympathy. And it's a difficult thing to write about because the people that like affective computing, they say, well, this is a way to humanize the tech. We're dealing more and more with technology. I mean, why not have technology that has smiley faces or animated avatars or even uh, created faces that make you like it and or that, that make you feel at ease or that make you feel like you're dealing with a human. But to me, there's some there's something that's really deceptive there because there isn't a human there. And that I think is the is the problem with so much of this is that it, it becomes a deception or an attribution because, for example, the AI bot that could be running Something like, say, the OS in Her, in that movie Her, to think of a very you know, vivid illustration of this sort of affective computing and a very advanced imagination of it, it doesn't have the emotions of the people that it's interacting with. And yet, it's sort of taking advantage of a world in which that was happening. And the other problem that comes out of this, I think, the, the reason I use the metaphor of counterfeiting, the AI should not counterfeit humanity, is because the proliferation of this technical ability to simulate human emotions, to me will inevitably lead to a devaluation of the authentic thing itself, right? You know, so that sort of is the worry that I have is that in a world where thinking of like the minority report vision of like the person constantly being 
having screens with faces or making appeals, et cetera, that, you know, it becomes easier and easier to just harden yourself to all of it and just shut it out, which is what many people in the U.S. now do to phone calls, right? If they don't recognize the number, they don't shut, they shut out the call. Part of that is because we have unregulated bot speech. We just have essentially, you know, it's, it's assumed to be the, attributed to the, the owner of the bot, but it's just like, well, if there's a First Amendment right for a robot to speak and to call you, then, you know, you're going to get 5,000 calls a year, or, well, not that money, but you're going to get it's like enough <laughs> that it's such an inconvenience that you just stop answering the phone. And this has actually had many serious problems with respect to, say, doctors not getting reached when their patients, when their patients are urgently ill. Uh, it's had problems with contact tracing in the COVID-19 context where people just don't answer their phone because we have unregulated bot speech and, and also human speech. It's not all a problem of robotics, but we can easily see how easily that, that problem becomes uh, multiplied if it just is allowed to be automated. And so that's where I'm coming out of. I think the more metaphysical side of it, I think, is just that I, I don't – I think that a, a, a world where we were surrounded by entities that were – mimicking or humanoid robots, I'm worried about that world because I think that uh, the claims on resources and attention by those entities become a bit overwhelming in light of what may already be overwhelming claims on our resources and attention just by people. Um, so, so that sort of is, a, is an idea. Although I, I know that's debatable, and 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 uh, there's there may well be much more positive visions of that type of future than what I'm able to imagine. I mean, one way of dealing with that is using the fourth law, having AI needing to identify itself, making its creator and its processes transparent to other humans. So, I guess my question, Frank, is what tells does an AI need, and how do you imagine we'd solve that from a technological? standpoint. I really appreciate that idea of the tells and the indicators. And I mean, one thing, you know, just in terms of existing technology providing a model, I once heard Ed Felton, a very smart technology policy analyst from Princeton, talking about Google Glass and recording equipment before always having a red light on. So you'd know when you were being recorded. I think now Macs have green lights, right? Uh, you can look at the green light and it's there telling you you're being recorded. Uh, it's an interesting shift there, by the way, in terms of persuasive advocacy as to whether it's a red This is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, or green isn't like, oh, thank goodness, it's actually recording. Um, but I, I think that, that sort of a light on, on certain equipment, on robots would be really helpful. I have to look at, I mean, there, there have been case studies of these robots in urban areas that are just patrolling and recording everything around them. And I don't think they have the light. I think they might have a sign on them that says, this is recording everything you do, but not a light on it. And I would definitely require something more than the sign. I think that's something really easy to viscerally recognize. And I think that Ryan Kahlo is the you know, big robot law person. And uh, he, he came up with this idea of visceral notice uh, for privacy uh, violative technology, or just we could call it data collecting technology if we want to be more neutral. Online speech is is interesting as well. I mean, that's one where perhaps some version of the robot emoji could be repurposed to be in the in the um, bio on Twitter or on social network sites uh, that to indicate the per the entity is a bot. It is really interesting to think about how you do disclosures that are not intrusive. That's been a debate ongoing in disclosure law for a long time. Like, for example, a lot of ads on Facebook, thanks to a really bad decision by the Federal Election Commission, did not have to have 
attributions uh, on them or the full attribution that's on TV and newspaper ads. And I think that type of uh, te- that type of technological non-neutrality or bias has to be addressed. And there's easily ways in which you could say have a link on those things. And actually, that's one of my first articles in this area was uh, on uh, – it's called Asterisk Revisited and it was on giving people a right to uh, reply to certain uh, Google results with a small asterisk that would lead to their side of the story. So those sorts of things, I think online, we we definitely have the affordances necessary to identify or at least give people a sense of the origins of AI or robotic expression. I guess a lot of this stuff feels like it's a long way away when we talk about the idea of governing AI and, and creating new rules for AI. We go, well, what AI? It really isn't here yet. What you're talking about feels very, very far away. But the reality is we already have artificial entities that we treat in certain ways using the law. And those artificial entities are artificial persons, otherwise known as corporations. So what can the framework under which we understand these artificial persons, these corporations, how can that be used and then applied to our thinking about AI? Yes, the corporate analogy is a very important one. And it has both promise and pitfalls. (laughs) I think the promise is that we do have uh, forms of liability for corporations and ways of ensuring that if a corporation is formed, we're supposed to know who owns it. Now, of course, unfortunately, as I mentioned in the Black Box Society book, there's lots of people that have gotten around that. And now there's increasingly legislation to force them to fess up and tell which corporation they own. But at the very least, we know who owns, we should know who owns major corporations so we can hold them responsible. The second layer, I think, of responsibility there is that we need to trace actions to particular people who made certain decisions. And so in that respect, if we were to think about in in corporate record keeping, there are many requirements with respect to financial regulation, other forms of formalities that have to be observed by corporations when they take certain actions and record keeping that help us understand who was the particular person that made a decision. Uh, for example, think of like the VW Volkswagen scandal in Europe involving the diesel engines, right? Uh, and, and trying to get around limits on emissions. We were able to identify some of the key actors there and to punish them accordingly. And I think the same can go with respect to robotics technology and to keeping track both of the initial algorithms and data and of the people that interacted with them who might uh, have interacted in a malicious way to set them on a bad course. So, for example, the Microsoft's bot Tay, ultimately learning or quote unquote machine learning online to be uh, or to emit uh, uh, text that is uh, racist and uh, homophobic and uh, sort of Nazi uh, Nazi speech because uh, of what the, the bot had interacted with. And so, I think that the, those the record keeping and attribution side of corporate regulation provides some model here for for where to go with robotics. So ultimately, what can we do? What can we do right now to ensure a future of robotics that is inclusive and is democratic? In other words, how do we engage in the anticipatory social research that shapes and not just merely responds to technological advance? How do we develop robots that reflect the hopes of, of all of us? I think that the anticipatory social research is a critical goal here because I think so much of the dialogue now is stuck between a uh, a very unambitious 
form of economics and engineering that is just sort of like, how do we get over the next crisis or through the next crisis? And uh, a very, very long-term view that is not really translatable into current policy. So one of the things that I would recommend to future policymakers here is to engage in scenario analysis of where you want a given sector to be in 10 to 15 years and what concrete steps would you need to take that. So for example, like if I were to think about robotic caregiving or uh, robots as assistance and augmenting human caregivers, I would like to see a world where 10 to 15 years from now, the people who are doing this work, which I think is some of the most important and meaningful work available, are first treated well, and secondly, are given the technology needed to lessen the burden of the aspects of the job that they find most burdensome and difficult, while simultaneously allowing them to keep developing their skills with respect to the parts of the job that they find most meaningful and appealing and uh, useful to those whom they help. And so part of that will involve, I think, licensure requirements both for the robotics and for the people doing those jobs, like what type of education is required, how do we certify that the robotics and AI that they're using is actually valuable and good, how do we improve it over time, and finally, how do we involve them in the improvement of it over time, you know, both with reports, post-marketing surveillance, other, other things like that. That's going to be a lot of work. You know, it's a lot of work in terms of structuring that, that sector. But on the other hand, we already have a lot of investment in ongoing quality improvement in a learning healthcare system. So that's one example. I think that there's uh, there are so many other examples, I think, where we can develop institutions that, you know, start that scenario analysis. And so I guess that the broadest, on the broadest level, the scenario analysis is key. But with respect to any particular sector, it's going to involve some very uh, specific consultations and uh, projections about where we want to see the the uh, tech and the labor develop together. Well, part of that scenario analysis is is storytelling, isn't it? The stories we tell about AI and robotics, they, they sometimes are a symptom of our anxiety about AI, but also they can be a great source of wisdom, can't they? Yes. That's a very important aspect of the future debates here is taking seriously the culture, be it art, novels, films, that resonates. And the, not just that resonates with huge numbers of people, but that just might resonate with smaller numbers or, you know, and, and, of individuals and, and, and thinking about the stories that it's telling and the problems it's identifying. This ability to bring in the humanistic perspective is really critical. There was a good book, I think, published by Oxford University Press last year on narrative and AI. And I think that being able to talk about stories in a way that is like democratic, inclusive, and rigorous is is important. You know, so for example, like the movie Ex Machina, some people just dismiss it and say, "Oh, well, another you know techno thriller that is trying to scare people about robots and whatever." But I actually think that it's it's has so many layers. I mean, having read the script more carefully and you know watched it a few times and just thinking about the layers of it, the layers of meaning. It really gives us a very concrete sense of, and this in so many aspects of our of culture and engaging AI and robotics. There's a whole Wikipedia page on movies about AI and robotics, which is which is great. They give really good concrete examples of when the rubber hits the road and people are actually interacting with this technology. What are the ethical dilemmas that occur, 
and how can we anticipate them and try to diffuse them uh, in the future. So that's where I think that there are just lots of roles for, for, for experts in narrative and literature and culture to inform these discussions. And on that important note, Frank Pasquale, thank you for being on the Futures Podcast. Oh, you're welcome, Luke. And thank you for just a terrific set of questions and conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you to Frank for offering us an inspiring vision for how human expertise will play a core role in technological progress. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, New Laws of Robotics, Defending Human Expertise in the Age of AI, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast. Thank you.